You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back Dr. Thomas Talbot, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. Dr. Talbot's The Inescapable Love of God has helped many, including myself, to see just exactly how strong a case can be made for a distinctly Christian vision of universal salvation. Through rigorous logic, Dr. Talbot exposes the problems we have inherited in Western theology's picture of God. But he doesn't just expose the problems of Western theology's picture of God, he also provides a solution to this problem by describing a better and even older picture of God which predates the Western Christian tradition. Dr. Talbot's scholarship has played a decisive part in the modern revival of this ancient Christian picture of a perfectly loving and perfectly triumphant God. I wanted to bring Dr. Talbot back today to tell us more about two big questions. First, why would an all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God allow various horrendous evils to take place in God's creation? And second, in a world where we face so much ambiguity and suffering, why does it still make sense to stake everything on hope rather than despair? So in anticipation of your answers to these two big questions, welcome back again, Dr. Thomas Talbot, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Uh, It's great to be here, David, uh, and I hope we can have a good discussion. Well, great. Well, let's go ahead and get this conversation going. Dr. Talbot, Chapter 1 of The Inescapable Love of God is entitled An Encounter with Western Theology. In that chapter, you recount how in high school you had enjoyed the logic of C.S. Lewis and how this kind of intellectual approach to Christianity inspired you to take a philosophy course in college. As part of that college course, your philosophy professor presented the standard arguments against the existence of God. Your experience was that while you were able to readily answer most of the standard arguments against the existence of God, there was one argument that you didn't quite know what to do with, namely the problem of evil. In The Inescapable Love of God, you wrote about your experience this way, stating, But one of the anti-theistic arguments my philosophy professor presented was different, because it attacked my religious beliefs in a powerful way and at the most fundamental level possible. That was the so-called argument from evil, which begins with a worry that almost every religious person thinks about at one time or another, namely this, how can we square the idea of a loving God with the evil and the profound misery and suffering we see all around us? And then in chapter 13 of your book entitled Love's Final Victory, you pick up this question again in a section of that chapter entitled The Problem of Evil, Some Further Reflections. Here you write, But even if we are all destined for a glorious end, hard questions remain concerning some of the evils that we experience along the way, especially during our earthly lives. So let us now return to this question. Are there plausible reasons, grounded in the nature of God's redemptive purposes, for why a supremely perfect creator might permit various historical events to unfold on their own and without interference, even when they result in seemingly horrendous evils, of a temporary kind. 
So, Dr. Talbot, why indeed might an all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God allow various horrendous evils to take place in his creation? Well, David, don't you have a difficult question for me to address? That, of course... (laughs) That, of course, is a a rather poor attempt at making a joke, because this is the trickiest, the most difficult question a theist could reflect upon. And maybe we should even talk about the question a little bit uh, to begin with, because it would uh, certainly be presumptuous of me to claim that I know the mind of God well enough to know for sure, what his precise uh, reasons were for permitting a case of horrendous evil, such as, say, the Holocaust uh, in Nazi Germany. Also, many theistic philosophers would concede that they have no idea why God permitted such a seemingly horrendous evil as that. But not knowing why God permits a given evil in a very is very different from knowing that God has no justifying reason at all for doing so. Indeed, there is always the possibility that some of God's reasons for acting may simply lie beyond our own kin. So we just might not be able to understand some of the reasons that God does things. That's a a common view that uh, skeptical theists have uh, offered, have defended. Uh, We also have to bear in mind that the burden of proof always rests squarely on the shoulders of those who claim to have a proof or even claim to have a strong argument for some conclusion. In response to an anti-theistic argument from evil, therefore, The burden does not rest with the theist to identify God's justifying reason for permitting certain horrendous evils. For as many skeptical theists would point out, the burden rests instead with the atheist to show successfully that such a justifying reason is impossible or at least unlikely. Similarly, if a theist should claim to have a proof of God's existence, the burden would then rest with the theist to establish that God does indeed exist. It would not rest with, say, the uh, non-theist to provide reasons for thinking that God does not exist. So anyway, we can ask the question at this point, how successful is the anti-theistic argument from evil? This argument typically comes in one of two very different forms. According to one form, sometimes called the logical problem of evil, it is argued that certain horrendous evils are logically inconsistent with the existence of a supremely perfect God. Why? Because it is logically impossible, some atheists have argued, that God should have a justifying reason for permitting any such evils as these. But according to another form, typically called the evidential or the inductive problem of evil, it is argued that because such evils reduce the chances or the likelihood of there being a justifying reason for them, 
they at least constitute evidence against the existence of a supremely perfect God. So whereas the first form is found, would exclude the very possibility of God having a justifying reason, the second form does not seek to exclude that possibility entirely. It concludes instead that such a possibility is unlikely or reduces the probability of God's existence. So, David, do you have any questions about what I've said so far? Well, I'd really just like to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. If I understand you so far, while you, as a theist, may not be able to fully answer why an all-knowing, loving, and powerful God allows evil, even though you believe a justifying reason to allow evil does exist, that doesn't mean that the anti-theist or the non-theist has proved the opposite point. There is still a burden on the atheist to show why a justifying reason for evil is impossible or unlikely. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, as already mentioned, if the theist claims to have a proof of God, then the burden rests with the theist to uh, you know, make the case. Think of the cosmological argument, which comes in several forms. You've got the argument that uh, there has to be a, uh, a prime mover, the argument that there has to be a first cause, the argument that if any contingent beings exist at all, then there must exist a necessary being, a being whose reason for existence lies in its own nature. Well, if a theist wants to defend that, one of those arguments, the theist has the burden of proof. I think you're exactly right in your interpretation. All right. Also, as I understand you, there are two ways an atheist might go in arguing against a good God. There is the simple argument from logic that no good God could allow horrendous evil and still be good. And there is the evidential or inductive form of the argument, which would essentially say that the odds of a justifying reason for allowing horrendous evil is so slim that this high improbability of a justifying reason constitutes evidence. Maybe I could put it this way. If a rather obvious reason for justifying horrendous evil is not apparent, then it is apparent that such a justifying reason for horrendous evil does not, in fact, exist. Yeah, that I, I think is correct, although I would substitute the term unlikely for the second occurrence of apparent in that last in other words, if it's not apparent that there is a justifying reason, that doesn't make it apparent that there is no, but it, it, it makes it more unlikely that there is no justifying reason. Or let's okay. say it reduces the probability. And incidentally, that's why I hold that there's really no reason why a theist needs to reject the evidential argument from evil. I see no reason, in other words, why a theist must reject the claim that certain horrendous evils, taken as an isolated body of evidence, seem to count against the existence of God. Wouldn't it be truly remarkable if nothing in our experience did that? The point is that what an isolated body of evidence might support may be very different from what our total evidence might support. 
In particular, God's existence might be utterly improbable with respect to an isolated body of evidence, and nonetheless probable to the point of a virtual certainty with respect to a given person's total evidence. As an illustration, uh, I have seen numerous white swans at a local lake in Placentia, California, and I've never seen a black swan there. So if I should receive reliable information that one of my granddaughters, one of my precious granddaughters, I might add, <laughs> uh, was feeding a swan in that lake, I would surely think it highly probable that she was feeding a swan, a white swan there. In relation to my daughter's total evidence, the mother of my granddaughter, however, it might nonetheless be a practical certainty that my granddaughter was feeding a black swan there. In a similar way, I see no reason why a theist cannot simply concede that the existence of certain horrendous evils or even uh, seemingly horrendous uh, evils taken by themselves do seem to count against the existence of a God and still remain confident both that such a God exists and that he has a justifying reason for permitting such evils. And that could be true, by the way, even if this theist has no idea what such a reason might be. Well, so far, the problem of evil we are discussing is how a good God could allow horrendous evils. But there is another aspect to this problem which seems equally troubling, and it has to do with the standard Christian understanding of hell. The question is, how could a good God eternally torment his failed children? How could an eternal punishment ever be a just penalty for a finite crime? Also, assuming God knows all and is completely responsible for creation, wouldn't God have known from the beginning of creation that his children would fall and incur guilt? If God is the first cause of all that is, then the existence of human evil is not a random event, but a feature of God's creation. In other words, if God causes the circumstances in which God knows human evil and guilt will arise, then doesn't God's goodness suffer if God is not able to provide a solution? The doctrine of eternal torment seems to exclude the possibility of God being good. And even the doctrine of annihilation of sinners, in my mind, does not solve the problem either. I could put the question simply this way. How can God be all good unless God has ultimate outcomes which are good for all? Great question, David. And there's no doubt, at least not in my own mind, that the doctrine of hell understood as God inflicting unending torment on some sinners as punishment for their sins committed during their earthly lives expresses a logical or a metaphysical impossibility. For it's simply not possible, I hold, that such torment without end would be in someone's best interest over the long run. And neither is it possible, in my mind anyway, that God would work against the best interest of those whom he supposedly loved into existence in the first place. So that brings us back to the logical problem of evil. However, in fairness, I should perhaps point out that most Christian philosophers who defend the possibility of an everlasting hell 
conceive of it as a fr freely embraced condition rather than as an externally imposed just punishment. C.S. Lewis likewise contended that the gates of hell are always locked on the inside, arguing in effect that God never rejects anyone, although he does grant a sinner the freedom to reject God forever. Some contend further that in hell God continues to provide sinners with the opportunity to repent and to restore fellowship with him. All the, the possibility always remains that they will never avail themselves of this possibility. For my own part, however, I think that the very idea of someone freely choosing to reject God forever is deeply incoherent. Otherwise, this might indeed be a way of reconciling God's goodness with the possibility of an everlasting hell. Anyway, David, your question clearly illustrates how different well-known theological claims, claims over which even Christians have serious disagreements, will have different implications for the logical problem of evil. The, the claim of some Christians that God will subject some sinners to an everlasting hell, that is, to everlasting conscious torment, implies that God has no regard whatsoever for the long-term good of these sinners. Instead, he's quite prepared to harm them irreparably. Other proponents of a free will theodicy of hell hold that God simply permits sinners to harm themselves irreparably, if that is what they freely choose to do. But consider that also by way of a contrast, someone who takes it at face value without trying to explain it away, St. Paul's declaration in Colossians 1.20 that God will eventually reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. That seems to imply a belief that God never permits any evil, however horrendous it may seem, at least over a uh, limited uh, uh, duration of time, to inflict irreparable harm on someone. Now, by uh, irreparable harm here in the present context, I mean harm that not even an omnipotent being could ever undo, repair, or compensate for in a recognizably worthwhile way. In short, a doctrine of universal reconciliation enables a Christian to insist that God draws the line at irreparable harm. He does allow temporary harm and seemingly horrendous harm, but never harm that he cannot, in his omnipotence, re repair at some future time. Now, we, uh, we humans tend to think of irreparable harm within the context of a very limited time frame, a person's life on earth. In that sense, every murder and every suicide would automatically seem to qualify as an instance of irreparable harm, even as every natural death would so qualify. But of course, 
An omnipotent God could resurrect a victim of murder just as easily as he could a victim of old age. So even though God might have a justifying reason for permitting Cain to murder Abel, he could never permit Cain to annihilate forever the very soul of Abel or to annihilate forever his individual consciousness. For that would indeed be an instance of irreparable harm inflicted upon Cain's brother. Still, even if one should agree with this, hard questions remain concerning such horrendous evils as the brutal rape and murder of a small child, the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, or even the dropping of nuclear bombs on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Given God's omnipotence, many have wondered why he would permit, however temporary they may be, such incidents to occur without interference. Is there a way to make sense of this? Well, Dr. Talbot, it just seems so hard to give a calm, logical response to why God might allow acts of tremendous evil as part of an overall good plan for everyone. Calm, logical answers are necessary, but they also somehow seem out of sync with the sheer devastation human beings actually experience. How can we hold together an intellectual explanation for the necessity of allowance for evil with the need for us to emotionally identify with the victims of such suffering? Well, David, as already indicated uh, previously, um, the conclusion of the so-called logical argument from evil, unlike the evidential form of the argument, rejects even the logical possibility that God might have a justifying reason for permitting the kinds of evils that you just mentioned. So that invites a theist to explore various logical possibilities, or even alleged possibilities, and try to identify a possible reason for why God, or a supremely perfect God, let's say, might permit such evils to occur. A possible reason not, need not be the actual reason, and need not even require the existence of a supreme being capable of acting upon it. But it should at least help to make it seem plausible that there could be such a justifying reason. Towards that end, then, it might be helpful to consider several issues. The logical limits of omnipotent power, the fundamental mystery that the creation of creatures like you and me entails, and the metaphysical obstacles that even an omnipotent being might face or need to overcome in an effort to produce a genuinely worthwhile creation. So how, first of all, should we understand the nature of God's omnipotent power? A common mis uh, misunderstanding at this point is that there are no limits of any kind to what an omnipotent being can do. But although there are no non-logical limits to what such a being can do, virtually all theistic philosophers would agree that there are indeed logical limits to what such a being can do. Not even an omnipotent being, in other words, can create square circles or bring it about that 2 plus 2 equals 5 or create a universe that has the property of being uncreated 
or perform any other logically impossible task. Now, it's easy to assume at this point that such logical limits as these are of little consequence. But that's not true at all. For suppose that God should causally determine every one of our thoughts, whatever it might be, every inference we might draw, whether it be drawn accurately or mistakenly, and every evaluation we might make of some body of evidence, however rational or irrational that evaluation might be. Suppose further that God wanted us to qualify as independently rational creatures, capable of reasoning on our own, at least some of the time. And suppose finally that we have here a genuine logical impossibility, as it clearly seems to be. If so, then God could not both causally determine all of our thoughts and reasoning processes in the way just described, and create us as independently rational creatures capable of reasoning on our own. If he wanted to create minimally rational creatures, therefore, he could not causally determine every event that occurs in his creation. That barely scratches the, the surface, however, of the complexities that even an omnipotent being might face in creating minimally rational creatures capable of reasoning on their own. How, for example, could even omnipotence create such independently rational creatures without meeting certain broadly logical or metaphysically necessary conditions of their coming into being? For if, as I have suggested, one of these metaphysically necessary conditions is a severance from God's direct causal control, severance, I should say, from God's direct causal control, and if God also wanted these minimally rational creatures to learn valuable lessons from experience and from their interactions with each other, then perhaps he would have had no choice but to permit their embryonic minds to emerge and to begin functioning on their own in a context of ambiguity, ignorance, and indeterminism. It is easy enough, I suppose, to imagine an omnipotent being instantaneously, instantaneously creating a self-aware, language-using, fully rational, and morally mature person capable of independent action. But I, for one, see no reason to think this possible at all. No one doubts, I presume, that all newborn babies, in fact, start out their lives in a context of ambiguity, ignorance, and misperception. But in addition to that, I ser seriously doubt that even omnipotence could create such independently rational creatures in a context other than that. So it is reasonable to assume that the creation of mature souls necessitates that they begin in a context of ambiguity, ignorance, and misperception. And when we look in the Bible, we find this in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. There are even fallen spiritual beings, such as fallen angels and the devil himself, which seem to be involved. 
So we are presented with a very complex and ambiguous situation on multiple fronts. Would it be fair then to say that from God's perspective, the more mature a soul God wishes to create, the more this requires God to allow more room for that soul to fall and to learn from firsthand experience the consequences of walking away from God. Yes, I think that's uh, astute way of putting it, uh, David. Adam and Eve, you'll note, had no knowledge of good and evil. And if that's the case, then um, they really had no understanding of the nature of God. I mean, they were in a context of ambiguity, ignorance, and misperception already. And that's why I think they ultimately disobeyed the command. I mean, they knew that some authority figure, maybe sort of like our parents, had told them not to eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden. But they had no real reason to understand, no way uh, to understand why that command was issued. In fact, they thought that, uh, you know, that that would be a great thing to disobey because then they would know good and evil, which is true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And interesting, in the early church, Irenaeus claims that they're like little children. You know, uh, there are a lot of theologians who think that uh, something radically changed for the children that were born after Adam and Eve. It seems to me they were all born, all children are born in the same context of ambiguity, ignorance, and misperception. And uh, Irenaeus, in effect, says that they were children in in all ways except for their size. As far as Satan and the fallen angels go, I mean, we don't know the how um, Satan originally came into being. They made eons of development. So I don't see either Adam and Eve or Satan himself as an exception to the fact that if you want an independently rational creature, you have to allow that mind to emerge in a context of ambiguity, ignorance, and misperception. So let's return now to the question you raised at the beginning. Put it this way. Are there plausible reasons grounded in the nature of God's redemptive purposes for why a supremely perfect God might permit various historical events to unfold on their own and without interference, even when they result in seemingly horrendous evils of a temporary kind. I say horrendous evils of a temporary kind because I am assuming, as already indicated, that God draws the line at irreparable harm. And this also requires, I think, the further assumption that no evil, however horrendous it may be, will endure forever. Still, Even if you rule out irreparable harm or harm that not even omnipotence could ever repair, many complexities remain. And here is how I address a few of them in a paragraph that I'll simply read. Okay. Within the context of the assumption, we're starting with the assumption that God draws a line at irreparable harm. 
So within the context of this assumption, it seems to me highly plausible that our earthly environment plays an important teaching role in helping to prepare billions of people for enduring happiness in the future. For insofar as God aims to teach the lessons of love and to do so without controlling our individual choices and without bypassing our own reasoning processes, he must allow us to discover for ourselves why a context of love and commitment to others is far superior to one in which we confusedly pursue our own perceived interests at the expense of others. Well, my cat has finally come back again. <laughs> well, I adore this well, cat. I'm going to see if I can just let, let her sit there for a minute. He must allow, he must in other allow, words, our own. Yeah, yeah, he must allow, in other words, our own experience to provide compelling evidence concerning the best way to live. And that surely requires a stable environment in which the natural consequences of our free actions, both the good ones and the bad ones, have the power to reveal the true nature of these actions. In particular, an environment in which newly emergent um, persons encounter real threats and dangers of a temporary kind, where one person's temporary welfare may depend upon the free choices of others and upon natural forces over which one has limited or no control, where there are therefore opportunities for consequential moral choices and where moral failure would likely provide ample opportunities for repentance, forgiveness, and atonement. Such an environment or school may be, I contend, an indispensable part of the best means available to God for securing a glorious future for all. In order to maintain such an environment, God may also have no choice but to adopt the strategy of non-interference with respect to certain seemingly horrendous evils of a temporary kind, even as he tries to enlist our aid in opposing them. For it is essential to his loving purposes and his soul-making project, as John Hick famously called it, that we have important work to do, important discoveries to make, and real evils to oppose. Accordingly, although I never claim to know why God permits this or that instance of human suffering, part of the Christian perspective on suffering, as I have come to understand it anyway, finally comes down to the idea that a truly worthwhile creation costs something. As, as I have put it in another paragraph that I'll just read, it is at least possible that not even an omnipotent God could create free, independent persons and perfect them as sons and daughters without paying a heavy price, both in terms of creaturely suffering and in terms of his own suffering as well. In no other environment except one in which innocent victims sometimes suffer temporarily could God perfect his loved ones and secure supreme happiness for all of them in the future. In no other environment could he achieve his ultimate victory over sin and death and reconcile the entire human race to himself. So God suffers himself and also uh, permits others to suffer as the price he must pay for a worthwhile creation. 
But though God does permit many bad things to occur without interference, and therefore does sometimes permit his loved ones to suffer, the final good he has in store for them, once he achieves his victory over sin and death, will more than compensate for any suffering endured along the way. In the words of John Hick, that future good will not be a mere reward or a compensation proportional to each individual's trials, but an infinite good that will render worthwhile any finite suffering endured in the course of the, attaining it. Well, Dr. Talbot, in the second part of this interview, I'd like to explore with you a very powerful idea of yours, which I think connects with how we overcome the problem of evil. And this is the idea that you have that, quote, even if there were no such thing as revelation, and even if we had no positive grounds for believing in God beyond a vague sense that the power responsible for bringing the universe, and more specifically human life, into existence must be wondrous indeed, even if all this were true, we would still do well, I contend, to stake everything on hope rather than upon despair. So let me put this in the form of a question. In a world where we do face so much ambiguity and suffering, why does it still make sense to stake everything on hope rather than despair? I think the basic reason for that, from my point of view, is that hope is compatible with a healthy skepticism. Despair is not compatible with a healthy skepticism. In fact, despair, and I'm thinking of despair as the opposite of hope, it requires that you know that things are hopeless and that there's no possibility that you're wrong in that. Um, listen to how Bertrand Russell in Free Man's Worship speaks of despair. And notice when I read this quote from Russell, how many dubious propositions he accepts as nearly certain. In order to despair that there's no hope, you have to believe, for example, there's no afterlife. And you have to be totally confident of that. Anyway, here's, here's what uh, Russell says. That man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual's life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. The whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. 
And the thing I want to emphasize in connection with, with that is simply that unyielding despair that um, Russell describes re requires that we are certain of so much that I don't think anybody could be certain of. And so that's why I think that uh, it's better to always retain hope than it is to yield to unyielding despair. Well, hope is compatible with a healthy skepticism, but despair is not compatible with a healthy skepticism because you have to think you know things that maybe it's just not possible to know. For example, that there is no afterlife. Well, one of the things that was a challenge for me is that when I was growing up, I grew up around extreme fundamentalism. I was not a member of a church growing up, but the kind of description of God that I grew up around actually led me to have despair about a being that was willing to eternally torture so many people. And so I couldn't, I couldn't really focus everything on hope until I had a vision of God in whom I could truly hope. And C.S. Lewis helped me for a time, but then I, I might say I needed some stronger medicine I needed the kind of vision that George MacDonald had of God. I needed a supremely good vision of God in which I could hope. What I eventually found out was that the Christian tradition actually contained this picture of God in its earliest days, and that there was a way that I could be Christian and hope in a supremely good God, and that I could do this in faith, but I could also do it with the logical understanding that this just makes the most sense. It's a, it's, it's a logical and sensible approach, and it requires faith, but everything requires faith. Atheism requires faith. Relentless despair requires faith. So I thought it better to have faith in the best possible vision of God that I could find within the Christian tradition. And so I've been very pleased to just discover that, that there are so many resources that I have for this within the Christ, Christian tradition. And, and you your scholarship has helped me and a lot of others just see how we can see this in the Christian tradition and in the scriptures, but that we can also make a philosophically coherent case for proceeding in life this way. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. But you know, I've known people that were not raised in a church and did not learn that God might subject you to everlasting torment because you didn't believe something, but who tended to think at, at times, well, I'll just trust the universe. Or I'll just trust that there is goodness that will triumph in the end. Though if you have a vision you know, of, of God of the kind that you just described, then that does make it easier to rest everything on hope. But I think even if you don't have that Christian background, uh, as uh, s some of the New Age people don't, but they still are able to, in a sense, stake everything on the hope that there is goodness and that will try. Well, I think in one of the reasons that people get into New Age spirituality and, and that type of thing is because they're not aware of the resources within the Christian tradition that they have for believing in a truly good God. They just assume that the fundamentalist voices that they hear or the most strident voices they hear, are the ones that represent Christianity. And so then they reject Christianity because all they, they have a very sort of 
shallow understanding of what it can really be. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't have any objection to that. I'm sure that many of the people I know do not understand that there is this magnificent Christian vision available in the tradition. Well, what's interesting to me is that this word tradition, because sometimes what what I'll hear is that, well, the traditional view on hell is that God will eternally torment those who fail to meet his standards. And we're told again and again that that's the traditional view. But when I actually look at the history of the church, it was some 500 years before that view became dominant. And so the earliest layer of tradition, I would say, in the church was to leave that matter open. In the earliest church, they were concerned about the full humanity of Christ, the full divinity of Christ, those types of things. But they left it open as to how Christians could interpret judgment. They believed that there would be a coming judgment, but how to interpret or understand that was left open. So the tradition, to me, the deepest tradition is affirming the divinity of Christ, the goodness of God, and then allowing people who want to come to Christ to come to their own best understandings of what God's judgment may finally mean. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I also think that in the 11th chapter of Romans, St. Paul makes it abundantly clear that God's judgment, his harshest punishment, even the hardening of the heart and the blinding of the eyes, is ultimately an expression of his mercy. And I, I wish that uh, the, the Christian tradition took that more into account. Yeah, Romans 11.32 turns out to be a very important verse that's sort of the summation of Paul's argument, giant argument that he's making in Romans, and we get to the end of it, and, and Paul there says in Romans 11.32, for that God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all. Yeah, or he shuts all of them up to their own disobedience, uh, in order that he might have mercy on all. And in, interesting, in, it's interesting that in the 11th chapter of Romans, he's talking about what you might think of as the non-elect Jews. All of the personal pronouns uh, refer to uh, those Jews that are not believers. They Have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. Ultimately, they have stumbled so that they can receive mercy. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you about this is because there is a lot of hopelessness that people are having these days. And we hear about the, the increased deaths of people who are taking certain types of prescription drugs and suicides. And there is a lot in the world to be depressed about. It seems to me we need a truly glorious vision to stake our lives upon. And I think you've done a good job of describing why that we can do that within the bounds of the Christian tradition and why logically it makes sense to do so. And I think the logical component of it is important because sometimes our emotions cloud our understanding and our thinking. And sometimes logically, we just need to hold on to the idea that what makes the most sense is to keep hoping and to stake everything on hope that unyielding despair just doesn't make sense. So even when I might not feel hopeful, it's better to just be hopeful 
until those good feelings return. So I think that logical component is really important. Yeah, I, I, I do too. I think that was a great summary, David. Well, thank you, Dr. Talbot, uh, so much for your time and for your scholarship and for your patience. Uh, you have worked on this topic for years and years. I'm glad that your work is receiving the attention that it should. And whatever I can do to promote your work, I will. And if there's other things that you'd ever like to talk with uh, me about on the podcast, I'm always happy to have you back. Well, thank you very much, David. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.